So I mentioned that four days ago on Wednesday, we celebrated Ash Wednesday together, and now we're in this season of Lent, lasting 40 days, not counting Sundays, um, and it leads right up into Easter Sunday when we're gonna celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And I'd never take it for granted that in a church like ours, which is a church plant from 14 years ago, we're drawing from streams of traditions all over the place. I never take it for granted that we're all just like, oh yeah, Lent, that's the thing that we know about. And some of you might be here today and you're like, this is completely new to me. I've never been in a church that said that word before. Uh, Some of you have been uh, raised with Lent like my own kids and every year it seems like they're like, what is that again? And so that might be where you're at. Um, Some of you have come to appreciate the meaningful rhythms of the church calendar like Advent and Lent and Pentecost and all of these different things and that's great. You're here like I'm all on board. And then still others of you may have um, had negative experiences from your your church background or or upbringing where Lent had these connotations of of heavy handedness and and, and maybe uh, was a guilt-based observance. And so I recognize that there's all those streams out there. I, I myself um, have have was never raised in a liturgical church and um, my little church experience growing up, um, it wasn't, I don't ever remember Lent being a thing. Maybe I wasn't paying attention. I was, probably would have been diagnosed with ADD or something like that had I been born later. Um, but uh, it wasn't until about 20 years ago when I started um, being exposed to more things that I came to embrace kind of the wisdom of the church calendar and how these seasons can actually be formative and helpful uh, in our, our becoming like Christ. Um, At its core, the season of Lent um, is a time set aside to reflect on how we've been living. Like, just to kind of take our pulse to look in the spiritual mirror and say, like, how's it been going? Am I being formed more like Christ, or am I being, like, deformed? Um, Like, am I even having a plan in my life? It's a season to recognize our need for Jesus and to prepare to celebrate his resurrection well on Easter. And sometimes there's this link in people's minds, I don't know if this is true for you, but we think of Lent uh, and we couple that with certain practices, like, like maybe fasting or reading scripture or, or service to other people, those are kind of common connotations. And while Lent does provide us an opportunity to consider new practices and habits in our lives, it, it's not primarily about what you do or don't do what you eat or what you don't eat. That's not primarily what Lent is about. See, Lent is a season that takes seriously the fact that as human beings, there's really no neutral in our lives. There's nothing we do or refrain from doing that's meaningless. We're constantly being formed or deformed. We're constantly growing or degenerating. And oftentimes it's not the activities that you do or don't do that matter as much as the motive behind those activities. And you can try that thought experiment with just about anything, but let's take something common like, like say, playing a sport or playing a musical instrument. Like those are pretty common things that At some point in everyone's life, it's probably touched you, right? So if your motive is to play a sport or an instrument for your own personal glory or because your parents really want you to 
or because you don't want to let your friends down who all wanted to join the team together or play in the orchestra together, then that motive has a way of forming you towards maybe selfishness or maybe passiveness or maybe approval addiction or whatever the case may be. So doing those things isn't, isn't necessarily bad. It's the motive. It's why we do them. So you could take the same exact person in the same exact scenario, playing an instrument and playing a sport, but all of a sudden, if you do it for the joy of playing, with thanksgiving that God would just, God, you gave me the grace to play. You gave me a body that works or hands that work, whatever the thing is that you need to do the thing you want to do. And you were able to give thanks for it well, then you're being formed into the kind of person who is appreciative of the gifts of God. You're being formed and having a joyful spirit as being a kind of person who adds value to the people around you, maybe on your team or in your orchestra or in your band. So your hobbies can form you or deform you. Your work can form you or deform you. Your relationships can form you or deform you. And it's not necessarily a function of changing your hobbies or your work or your relationships or your friends. It's mostly a function of your attitude and your approach, your goals and your reasons for engaging in those things. I say all of this as a prelude to the passage that we're about to explore in the Gospel of Mark. We're currently in a section in Mark's gospel where Jesus encounters resistance from all sorts of different religious authorities. And we're coming off the heels of Jesus' encounter with the leaders in the story of the paralytic, where he forgives this guy of his sins and they get bent out of shape. They say, you can't do that. Who do you think you are? And then we saw the calling of Levi, this tax collector, and there was a conflict. People were bugged that Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners. And this evening, we're going to see a conflict over Jesus and his disciples choosing not to fast. And this is Mark 2, 18 through 22, and here's how the story goes. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered and said, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They can't, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and then on that day, they'll fast. Now, no one sews a, a patch of unshrunk cloth to an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear even worse. And, and no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be poured out and ruined. Now, they pour the new wine into new wineskins. So on Ash Wednesday, we read this story where Jesus was confronted about eating with the wrong sorts of people. People got all bent out of shape about it. And now he's being challenged by some of the same kinds of people, not for who he's eating with, but now he's not, now he's eating at all, right? Like, why aren't you fasting, dude? They get all mad at him. And fasting is a term fairly loosely 
defined depending on who you're talking to. Traditionally, fasting has meant abstaining from food of any sort for a a set period of time. It can have non-religious connotations, like if you've ever fasted before surgery, or you've ever been on like one of those cleanse diets or something, so that's that's a reason why you might fast. Um, or, Or fasting can have symbolic social connotations, like a hunger strike, to draw attention to injustice, or, or to stand in solidarity with people um, in other places who are going hungry, right? So that can have a social aspect. And of course, fasting also has religious connotations, and most major religions around the world over time have incorporated fasting for different reasons. And I think that fasting is so widespread across time and cultures and religions because humans and food have a complicated relationship. Ever since hunter-gatherers, ever since we were hunter-gatherers, right, humans are wired to seek food, to secure food, and to make sure that we have abundant supplies of food. And like it or not, food represents more than just fuel for our bodies. It represents security, Fertility, like you can, you can track uh, birth rates and population growth depending on food supply. Uh, it, it represents comfort and power and pleasure. And it's the context for building and maintaining relationships. You know, in every culture, when people are courting, um, they, they share meals together. Like the, date, the, the, the dates and having food together is a thing. It's a human thing, uh, not just a Western thing. And of course, one of our central practices as a Christian church is centered on, on a meal. Jesus gave us this symbol. No, no mistake that it's centered around a meal, table fellowship. And because food represents so much of our relationship um, with other people and it's so complicated, it's also an easy relationship, our relationship with food, it's easy to get corrupted. We can hoard it, We can cover our emotions with it. We can consume too much of it. We can destroy our bodies with unhealthy versions of it. And we can definitely waste it. So fasting has been a way for people to shape their appetites and to make sure that food is a thing to be enjoyed and appreciated, but not used and not abused. Fasting was also a way of expressing like repentance and mourning and humility. It's a way of drawing close to God in humility. So what's the problem with Jesus in the story? If fasting is traditionally a helpful tool in the spiritual toolbox, why isn't he and his disciples fasting? Now here's where the story gets a lot more interesting than a lecture on fasting. You'll be pleased to hear. Um, The text doesn't imply that Jesus and his disciples never fasted. It implies that they weren't fasting like the Pharisees and John the Baptist's disciples were fasting. 
In Hebrew, in the, in the Hebrew scriptures, there were days set aside in the calendar to, to fast, like Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. This is a, a thing that people still observe today where uh, I remember one time, I forget his name, but it was a pro baseball player in the playoffs. Um, it was Jewish, and he, he didn't play on a, in a big game. I think it was like a game five or something like that because he was fasting for Yom Kippur. Um, so it's, 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 still a, it's still a big deal. These days often included some sort of repentance of sin uh, as part of the fasting, but also a preparation. Fasting in the Jewish tradition was always a preparation for celebrating at the end of the season of fasting. So it was a cycle of fasting and then feasting and then fasting and then feasting, repentance and celebration. And those rhythms are quite right and quite natural and there's every evidence that Jesus and his disciples probably practiced those rhythms. But the Pharisees and John the Baptist disciples were known for practicing extra fasts. And in the first century, many of those types of folks would fast on Tuesdays and Thursdays because they wanted to. It was extra, and it was kind of a way of trying to get God's attention and to pray for the coming salvation of God. And the idea was, you know, if we humble ourselves and we fast on these special extra days, maybe God will pay attention and maybe God would see us. And that's the fasting that Jesus and his disciples weren't participating in. And so they must have been questioning, like, you say all of these things about the kingdom of God, you're clearly special, you're healing all these people, why wouldn't you also want God to come as passionately as we do? Why aren't you joining us in these extra fasts on Tuesdays and Thursdays? Well, there's something interesting here as we look forward to time as the prophets talked about when God would bring salvation. He spoke of it as a time when there'd be a great banquet. A lot of this is metaphorical, but in Isaiah 25, for example, there's a picture, a word picture of of the kingdom of God coming, and it's described as a massive banquet, a wedding banquet where there's choice meats and and grains and and, and wine overflowing, and at this table are people from all over the world, and, and it's just, it's a party. It's like a wedding party. And later on in Isaiah chapters 54 and 62, God's arrival would be described as a, literally a wedding feast. And in those pictures, in in those prophetic pictures, God would be like a bridegroom and Israel would be like the bride. And there would be this coming together, God coming to his people and a massive banquet representing joy. And what Jesus is saying in this passage is that that day has arrived, that God has come, that Jesus embodies God, that he's been gathering a community and freeing people from spiritual oppression and healing the sick and raising the lame and restoring sinners and feasting with people, all kinds of unexpected people, just like the prophet spoke of. And all that has happened in Mark 1 and the beginning of 2. It's pretty great. And that's why we see Jesus using this bridegroom reference for himself. Israelite weddings were the highlights of many people's years. If you're from a small town and there was a wedding in your town, it would last a week. And it would be your, like you would take vacation time and that would be your, your vacation. And you, the whole town would come together for a week and the, the bride and the groom's parents would get together and provide not just food, but good food. Um, 
meat wasn't an everyday staple, so there would be, there would be meat and wine, and for seven days you would drink and eat and be entertained, and you would dance, and you would connect with your community. It was amazing, the highlight of many people's years. And in fact, there's Jewish uh, writings that talk about if someone was fasting and it was a wedding season that they could break their fast for the wedding. It was that, the banquet always trumped the fasting. And in fact, if you were invited to a wedding week like that, and somebody's parents went all out to, to provide the food and the wine and the dancing, and you were sat in a corner like this and said, oh, I'm, I'm fasting. It would be a, just a massive insult uh, in a culture where insults are a lot bigger deal than, 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 than they are today. That's what Jesus is saying here. We're not fasting, because how can we? The bridegroom has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus in the flesh is the foretaste of the final wedding when he returns to make all things new. And in fact, this is Revelation 19 is a vision of the future return of Jesus. And again, it's described as a wedding feast where Jesus is the bridegroom. With the arrival of Jesus comes the start of something new. A new way of relating to God a new way of salvation for the world, a new way of living in which Jesus has come to dwell with us and in us. And to drive his point home, Jesus gives two like very homey type parables. Parables that would be super like duh to his first century hearers, but are sort of a bit removed for us today. So he has this one about the shrunken cloth and I was just thinking like with the advent of cheap available clothing when... <laughs> Samara goes through those legging things like nobody's business. Like, we don't really patch them. We <laughs> chuck them out or use them for rags and we just buy new ones at Target for $5 or whatever. But, um, so we don't patch a lot of clothes in our house. But you know, imagine a time period where you know, everything was handmade and probably made a little better too than it is today. And um, you, know, you can't just go to, to the outlet store and just grab a new, new pair of pants or a new tunic or whatever. So there's the patching thing would have been a, a metaphor that people get, and, um, uh, and this, so the idea is like, if you have this old garment that's well-worn and kind of all, all done shrinking and all that, and you put a new patch on it, and then over time, uh, it, it would pull away, and it would tear worse, right? And so Jesus is saying those two things aren't compatible. And the same thing with wine, like they used to store wine not just in jars, like large quantity in jars, but like for the average person, you have like a, like a skin, like a bag, uh, a, a made of animal skin, and over time, that skin, that leather gets, gets harder and less malleable, and when you put new wine in that hasn't fermented all the way, it can expand and burst the bag out, and Jesus's point is, it, it, it is not something wrong with the bag, and it's not something wrong with the new wine. It's just the, the fact that those two things can't go together. They're not compatible anymore, and this is, the, the point he's making is that because the bridegroom and the kingdom of the kingdom is here, the thing that they'd been longing for, fasting for, begging to see happen, he's saying, hey, it's beginning to arrive right now. And since it's arrived, the old ways are incompatible with the new ways. It's not replacement, it's fulfillment. You see the difference? It's not saying the old way was bad, it's that the new way is here and the old way isn't needed in the same way anymore. N.T. Wright kind of talks about this in, 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 in Acts, and, and he's big on like, 
the Old Testament and the Hebrew scriptures are not something that was bad or to be thrown away. He said it's like if you're trying to get to, from the east coast of the United States in the old days before airplanes, and you're taking a boat, and you're trying to get to the west coast, and you have the ship that is like the Old Testament, and it gets to uh, the Isthmus in Panama before the canal. And then you get off that ship, and you walk across the land, you don't take it with you. Like, that would be such a pain, a burden to drag that across the isthmus. You, you get on the new thing, because now you're on the west coast, and, and it's a new world. And, and, and so that's, that's what Jesus is saying, is that the, the old garment, the old wineskin, it's not bad. It's just not compatible with the new. It's not replacement, but fulfillment. And that, that's the good news of this passage, really, like from a theological standpoint, is that the kingdom of God has begun to break in with the arrival of Jesus. And through the life of Jesus, we see what, is, what happens when the kingdom of God is present in one person, in one point in, in time, Jesus, in the first century in Palestine. And even when we see snapshots of what that is like, it's pretty darn amazing. Like, he speaks words, and nature obeys him, and like, demons are cast out, and oppression is, is undone, and broken bodies are made new, and isolated social uh, people are made incorporated into the community. It's fantastic when the kingdom comes, and that's one person in one point of time in one place. Now, what happens when, what happens when the kingdom comes everywhere all at once? on the day of the Lord's return. That's the hope that we have. That's, that's where we put our, our weight. That's how, that's how we walk in a broken world, not with blinders on. See, it really is broken, but our hope is that when the Lord returns, all things will be made new. Hmm. So what does that mean for us in the 21st century? Do we fast? Do we not fast? Well, we know from Scripture and experience uh, of the early church that fasting and feasting are still parts of the life of following Jesus. In, in this very passage, Jesus mentions that there will be a time when the bridegroom is taking away, probably a reference to his death, right, and resurrection. Uh, and, and he says, you know, when that happens, it'll be the time to fast. Well, that wasn't very long after, after this story. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, Jesus implies that fasting is the normal part of a, of a life of a disciple of his. And we know uh, in the book of Acts that sometimes people discerned decisions by, by prayer and fasting. And then a really interesting document um, that's from the first century AD, so very late in the first century, right after uh, Jesus rose and was ascended and the early church formed. It's called the Didache, which literally means the teaching. And we learn in the Didache that many Christians fasted on regular intervals. They kind of shifted from the Tuesday, Thursday to a Wednesday, Friday kind of thing. So, And the key to remember, uh, to, to think about fasting in, in all of this context is, is why why we would fast or why we would feast. Like feasting is a celebration uh, of rejoicing in the good gifts of God, right? And, and the longest feast season in the Christian calendar is Eastertide. It starts on Easter Sunday, goes 50 days to Pentecost, which is another party day, and that whole time is a season of feasting. Um, Christmas tide, 12 days of Christmas is a season of feasting. And then there's feasts scattered all throughout the calendar, depending on how you, how you read the Christian calendar and if you're really into saint days and all of that stuff. But I mean, even in, in our, our regular lives, 
we have all these reasons for feasting. Anniversaries are a season and a reason for feasting. Birthdays are a reason for feasting. Heck, Cinco de Mayo is a reason for feasting, right? Tacos, come on. We're good at the feasting. Like we, and there's good reasons to feast. We have a good earth and a good God and, and good community, and that's worth celebrating. But since we're in the season of Lent, we should look at why we might consider fasting. We should probably ask the question, like, what is it for? Like, what is it for? If Jesus has come, and if his death and resurrection have brought salvation, which I think it has, right? And if we have the promise and hope of his return and our own resurrection, then what's there to fast about, right? Well, if we think about fasting as a tool that can help us grow closer to God, a tool that can help us be formed in Christ's likeness, then it becomes not a have to, but an exercise that we can participate in. Like, for example, fasting from food or media or alcohol or whatever distracts us can help us focus on prayer. By removing dependence on things that distract us or, or just merely entertain us, entertain us or give us dopamine hits like all those little games that hook us on our phones or whatever, um, things that, that falsely comfort us or, or paper over our anxiety, kind of get us through, like maybe we're at school or work and that keeps our minds busy. Then we get home and we've got free time, although I don't feel like I have much of that, but like, you know, like the, the, it's, it's the routine of, Maybe I'll just watch these shows and then I'll be tired enough and then I'll sleep. And there's just ways for us to avoid facing anxiety, facing our real fears, facing our real failures. Like we have ingenious ways of masking all of those things. Fasting is never the goal. Like fasting will not win you any prizes with God. Fasting helps us to be dependent on God. Humble, vulnerable, sober, clear-minded. Fasting can help us be drawn to prayer, freed from addiction and distraction. And I find that when I fast, even for a couple of meals, I'm more drawn to prayer more easily. And I know this, I appreciate my next meal all the more. It tastes better. I'm more excited about it. It's less of a routine and a thing I take for granted and more of a celebration. But fasting can also be a discipline that helps us be formed in the likeness of Jesus to live the way he made us to live. Jonathan shared earlier from Isaiah 58 in that passage, you probably got the gist of it just from the reading. Like, God is kind of fed up with Israel at that time. They fast, they gather for worship, they do all these religious activities, but they don't do the things that matter most to God. And this is, listen again to God's complaint about, about it. He says, is this the kind of fast I've chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? Is that what you call a day acceptable to the Lord? This is God talking 
to the people through the prophet here. And then he says, is this not the kind of fast I've chosen? This is what I'd rather see you do. Loose the chains of injustice. Untie the cords of the yoke. You know, yoke, yokes up an oxen, puts them in line, makes them do work, right? So the yoke represents whatever is, is oppressing a person, right? I'd rather see you untie the cords of the yoke, set the oppressed free, break the yoke altogether. It's not the fast that I want from you, not, not bowing in sackcloth and ashes, but to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter. And when you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. God, I need help not turning away from my own flesh and blood. You know what I'm talking about. There's the people you meet on the street or maybe they're in your own life and you try and avoid them because, man, you don't want to get involved right now. You don't have time for that. That's uncomfortable. It's my own flesh and blood. And I want to be on to the thing that makes me comfortable, to the people that make me comfortable. You resonate with that? And it's way easier for me to go fast in my happy house and skip a few meals and feel good about the meal I'm gonna eat, but the fast that Jesus wants is for me not to turn away from my own flesh and blood. And he says, you know what? When you do those things, when you're about the kind of fast that I'm about, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will appear quickly and your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be at your rear guard, and then you'll call on the Lord, and I'll answer, and I'll hear your cry for help. So during the season of Lent, we're invited to take time to ask ourselves, what trajectory are we on? How are we being formed in the image of Christ? If our food and our drink and our distractions, and our screen time, and our busyness, if we have set up our lives in such a way that, that are not working toward the ways of justice and love of another person and caring for the poor, treating people in our lives with love and dignity, then we might want to consider a temporary fast from that which distracts us in order uh, to gain what is of ultimate importance. Healthy engagement with practices like fasting should always be considered an invitation. So let me just pause and say that again. Healthy engagement with practices like fasting should always be considered by invitation. Jesus does not shame us and pressure us into spiritual practices like fasting. So if you're you know, hearing that trigger of, of your own religious upbringing where it was heavy-handed, that's not probably from the Lord. That's not typically how Jesus works. The way Jesus typically works is by invitation. He has a clear and gentle way of bringing to our attention the direction he's calling us to follow. And that's why every time we come around to, to seasons like this where we talk about Lent and, and, and practices and Advent and those practices, there's no cookie cutter approach and what worked for you last year might not work for you this year. And what you were called to do last year or last decade is probably not the same because you're a different person. 
and God is dynamic. And so we listen for the invitation of God, not the things we're supposed to do or should do. Maybe you've already been sensing a direction, an invitation to follow. Maybe there's a certain thing that you're considering abstinence from, fasting from, some good thing to give up for the sake of something better. Then I I encourage you to listen to that invitation. Maybe this is mm, what you needed to, to push you over the hump. Or maybe... This is the season that Jesus is inviting you to something other than fasting. And that's okay too. That's okay too. The ultimate point of this passage in Mark's gospel is that Jesus, the love of God, has been unleashed in the world. Jesus, his arrival has begun the arrival of God's kingdom. And the good news is that we get to join him in that reality. So what would joining Jesus look like for you in this season? Lord, I pray that you would open up our imaginations, our senses to what you're saying through your word and what you're saying through your spirit. I pray, Lord, that we would sniff out um, those feelings of shame those feelings or tapes of you ought to do, you should do, you should be like. Lord, help us to to sift those voices out as not your authentic voice. But help us to hear and be sensitive to your gentle invitation, your clear nudge, inviting us to a, a life of deeper freedom, a life of deeper love, a life where our will actually aligns with your will. And Lord, give us the courage to ruthlessly pursue that. Give us the courage to possibly give up something good in order to gain something better. Amen.